Hi, I'm Arno Verum, and in this podcast, I speak with Jim Epstein, executive editor at Reason TV. Jim recently produced a documentary miniseries on the cypherpunks called Cypherpunks Write Code. The four-part series chronicles the origins and short history of this group of hackers, cryptographers and activists that in the 1990s coalesced around the shared goal to offer and secure privacy in the digital age. Here's the interview. Jim, how are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on. It's, uh, I'm a, a big fan of your work, both on cypherpunks and on all things Bitcoin, actually. Whenever there's some new technical uh, development in the Bitcoin world, uh, which I don't understand, which is always the case, I always immediately Google your name looking for something that I actually will understand. So nice. I'm thrilled to be with you. Yeah, well, thanks for being on. Yeah, I did a bunch of research on uh, cypherpunk stuff myself. I'm in the process of working on a book, actually. It's sort of a side project on the history of Bitcoin. So there's a lot of cypherpunk oh, really? stuff in there. Huh. Yeah, it's a work in progress. It's uh, been working on it for, well, did you see my Genesis Files articles? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of when I started, I guess. That, that's sort of my first dive into this topic. And from there on, in bits and pieces, I've been working on this. And who are some of the people that you've talked to? Yeah, so very few. I'm kind of holding that off in a way. I've spoken to some informally, but I'm kind of doing all of the research first. I've read a whole bunch of the cypherpunks archives, but also other historic things. A lot of Hayek, which is also a big part of your documentary series, which is why you're on the documentary series. <laughs> cypherpunks write code. First of all, let's start with... Um, introducing yourself okay. to our listeners who might not know who you are. Sure. Um, so I am the, I work at Reason Magazine. I'm actually the executive editor of video and podcasts. We've got this great video platform, which has been around for over a decade. It was actually started by Drew Carey. We do a lot of video journalism. We put out about a video, uh, about three or four videos a week, in-depth documentaries. We do some comedy pieces, some viral stuff. And we've got about 10 producers in LA, New York, DC scattered around. Sort of my day job is overseeing that operation. Um, but my background is in video journalism. I worked actually at the PBS station here in New York City, where I lived for about eight years. So, and I had a great experience, though I'm, I'm a libertarian and that wasn't a perfect fit for me. But, uh, you know, I've been at Reason for about nine or 10 years now. And um, I became sort of obsessed with Bitcoin, I would say. Maybe it was 2013. I kind of have to look it up when I kind of had my oh shit moment where I got really, really excited about Bitcoin as the, you know, just the most incredible technology around. I, I share that meme that you see online a lot of sort of like how depressing it would be now to live in a world without Bitcoin. Endlessly excited by it as a, you know, really as sort of a technology for freedom. That's kind of my big interest as a journalist is the intersection between technology and freedom. And that's kind of what got me interested in also trying to learn more about the roots of Bitcoin and the cypherpunk movement. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess that's about it. Yeah. Bitcoin is sort of the one bright spot we have left right now in the world. <laughs> it's like the, the thing we can sort of hold on to as hope that things will get better eventually. Totally. And, and there's this, I mean, part of what fascinates so many people about Bitcoin, you know, the Bitcoin creation story is so fascinating because, you know, the mysterious genius who dropped this project. Um, and so that it's interesting to know that like, well, it was certainly a stroke of genius, but there is this history there. People were trying to do this kind of something very similar for many years. Um, but it, what's fascinating is the I don't know if this lines up with your research too, but like the cypherpunk movement sort of peters out in 2001, like the list continues, but all the energy deflates from it. And then Bitcoin comes and it's like, boom, like it's just, it's, it's been reborn. Um, right. And so many of these ideas, and I don't know whether the people who are putting forward these ideas realize it or not. So many of these ideas have antecedents in this earlier movement in the 1990s and before that too. Yeah, before we get to that, what about Reason? It's a libertarian? Oh, sure, yeah. Mm. So Reason is, Reason's been around since 1968, um, and uh, it is a monthly print magazine and website. More, most of our audience finds us on the website, and we, are, we do libertarian journalism. You know, we're libertarians, but we're not 
publishing, we're not publishing propaganda. We, you know, we take our journalism very seriously. We do reported pieces. We listen to all sides. Our tagline is free minds and free markets. And um, interest in sort of technology as a driver of freedom goes back to reason's roots. We're founded by a pretty interesting guy named Lanny Friedlander. And this was one of the things he really believed in. So, so we're at reason.com and our YouTube channel is the best place to see our videos, which is at reason TV. Do you guys do a lot of Bitcoin stuff? Is Bitcoin a big part of your operation or? Um, we, we do. We have um, um, actually Declan McCullough is, a, is a, a columnist for us. And I'm sure you've come across his name because he was part of the cypherpunk movement. Um, we, we do have um, tech coverage and we do do some Bitcoin coverage, but nowhere, nothing like you'll find at Bitcoin magazine with sort of like the in, you know, in-depth discussion and getting deep into the technical issues. Right. I, I do. I do a lot of Bitcoin stuff. I wish I could do more, um, but I, you know, I'm I'm sort of um, an editor primarily. So the stories that I do kind of happen in like an hour. I have I can squeeze into the day here and there. And actually, so my Cypherbunks documentary has been in the works for a long time. I published a lot of stories since then. Basically, what I started doing a few years ago is every time I would be in some location where they're like, you know, the Bay Area, obviously, I had a reason to do a trip to the Bay Area. Um, I would pick up a couple interviews with, with some cypherpunks. I would sort of tack it on to my, to my trip. Um, I never did, the one, place, one, one of my regrets is I never made it to Utah because I did actually talk at length with Eric Hughes. And I feel like he's, he's such a big part of the story. I mean, he's one of the cypherpunk co-founders and he's not in my documentary, although certainly I have clips of him and my conversation with him certainly informed everything. Right. So it's a five parts documentary, right? Four parts. Oh, four sorry. Parts. Four parts. Four about... parts. And I also wrote an article too. So I guess yeah. you could say five. So the first episode was about something I actually hadn't heard much about, which were the high-tech Hayekians. Now, I've heard about Extropians a lot, but the high-tech Hayekians, are they... Tell, tell me about the high-tech Hayekians. Sure. Who were they or uh, what were they? So and it was actually... I, when I interviewed Tim May, I didn't know about the high-tech Hayekians. He mentioned them, and that sort of is what ended up getting me interested, and then I reached out to them. Um, high-tech Hayekian is actually a name that... Um, it was the title of an article written by Don Lavoy, who was a brilliant Austrian economist at George Mason University and the Merc what is now the Mercatus Center, um, and uh, who's written wonderful books, uh, Rivalry and Central Planning. I recommend to everybody. It's a fantastic book about Mises and Hayek. Everybody should read it. Anyway, Lavoy had been a software developer earlier in his career. And he, um, I forget exactly the genesis of it, but he ended up, I think it was maybe Mark Miller or Phil Salen sent him a letter. And he ended up sort of meeting with them and getting interested in this group of software developers who were living in the Bay Area. This is in the late 80s, um, who were really interested in how the ideas of Hayek had similarities in the way software is constructed. Some of, some of um, Hayek's ideas about the um, decentralization and information in the economy um, and, and sort of the nature of planning. Um, and uh, Lavoie got really interested in their work and ended up writing an article that was called The High-Tech Hayekians. So that's kind of what I've gone with that name because I like it. It's sort of people can grasp onto it and it really describes them well. But they were a group who in the late 80s were um, uh, working at two startups that were actually part of Autodesk, which is now known as the writer of CAD software in the Bay Area. One was Project Xanadu, and the other was the American Information Exchange. And they shared a parking lot in Palo Alto. I actually went to the building where, where it was to see if there was anything worth capturing video-wise. I didn't use anything, but there, there was a, uh, a shared parking lot, and sort of the, this group of guys became friends. And it was just this sort of like really intellectual community where they they read a lot of Popper and Hayek and they were really thinking about they they saw that something like the internet was coming we were going to have a world of PCs interconnected and they were thinking about how they saw this as really sort of increasing human freedom in all respects in major ways. They also worried about it creating an Orwellian state as well. But they, they understood that their idea was like, if we could build the right tools in software that people could use, then we can really take advantage of this 
um, incredible technology that's coming because it already existed to some degree. This is before people were using the, the ARPANET or, or the early internet. It was before the World Wide Web. There were these services like CompuServe and you would, you would dial in to a ser- from a server and you, you, know, you could sort of shop in the electronic mall or you could post to these early bill- bulletin boards and sort of u- use net groups and so forth. And this was really exciting for them. They thought, wow, like this is going to disintermediate information and really create these two-way flows of information. Um, so, so there were two startups. One was Project Xanadu, which actually begins in the 1960s. The founder of that is this very interesting guy named Ted Nelson. Um, and this was an idea of, of, of connecting all the world's information online, very much like the World Wide Web, although it was far more sophisticated. Um, it actually had a payment mechanism built into it. Um, it was more, it had a more sophisticated, approach to hyperlinking. And if you talk to the Xanadu guys, they, they sort of think that if something like Xanadu had been built, maybe we would have better online discourse. Um, it ended up not actually getting built um, or not being deployed. Um, so across the parking lot was the American Information Exchange, which was run, started by this really interesting Hayekian and uh, libertarian entrepreneur and economist named Phil Salen, who, who's now dead. He died in 1991. Um, and and Salen um, had this idea that we could have an information, a marketplace for information, where you buy and sell information on this platform, and it would be negotiated between the two parties. Um, there would be a pros aspect to it and a software aspect to it. Um, and the people who were involved with uh, building Amex call it the first smart contracting system, which is controversial. Not everybody agrees with that. But it was this idea that you could, you know, Hayek had written about sort of individual expertise and knowledge, the decentralization of expertise and knowledge. And Salem believed that a platform like this could lead to knowledge sharing, localized knowledge sharing, but in a global way. And it would sort of lead us to a better world. In the same way that people like Mark Miller, who was... um, one of the architects of Xanadu um, was very influenced by the work of Karl Popper. And he, he believed that sort of better, better information sharing, better flow of information and linking between sources and access to information would just lead society to better ideas. Um, so, so just this enormous optimism. And this is happening in the late 1980s. Yeah. So for context, this was long before Google or Amazon or anything like that. Or they the were web. already... Not long before, but a little bit before the web, yeah. And they were playing around with these kinds of ideas. So were they also extropians or was that sort of the same area of community of people? Do you know that? Do you know about extropians? Yeah, I do know about the extropians list. And I know Tim May was on it. I know Robin Hansen was on it. I, I think that a, a Mark, bunch of the early Bitcoin type of people, Nick Zaba was on there, Vidai was on there, I think. Totally. And, and think about it as like, this is a group of like, I don't know, 20 or 30 guys. I mean, it's a really small community. They all knew each other. They all, I mean, yes, there was total overlap between the Cypherpunks list, the Extropians list, Xanadu, um, Amex, um, ultimately, DigiCash, which you've done great stuff on, and, and Chom, Chom's, um, Chom's group. It's all the, you keep seeing the same names popping up all, all, all the time. And then you, I mean, Mitch Kapoor, founder of Lotus, he was, he was connected to this group. Um, Christopher Allen, who's kind of a pioneer in cryptography, he, he's, and ended up at Blockstream, actually. He's, so mm-hmm. not only were they like all, all these overlapping groups and people, but then even today, you know, sadly, Salen is not around and Tim May died recently. But you, in the Bitcoin world, you see a lot of these same names adam back of course who are still still involved with the prominent companies um you know really ultimately wasn't really that long ago which is one of the fun things about studying this particular period in history a lot of the people are around yeah the extropian so for the listeners that don't know this these were the, these sort of futurists but kind of realistic futurists they were looking at science and looking at the exponential growth of science and they started to believe that all sorts of uh, extraordinary things would be possible probably within their lifetime, like, you know, space travel, uh, eternal life is a big one, nanotechnology, these kinds of things. Yeah, you also had 
Go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, they also had like these dress up parties kinds of things. And I saw Phil Salin in your documentary dressed up like an astronaut. So that's why I was interested. That's why I, 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 I think he must have been part of that group then. But uh, I couldn't find the connection by a simple Google search or anything like that. Yeah, I don't know that. I think when did the extropians list run? What was the those 80s as well 80s okay he he very well may have been um i i um that particular party and that's footage i got all of this great footage from phil salen's um uh, widow and and really business partner she was involved in he had been in the private space industry she was really his partner and then she's now an entrepreneur in silicon valley in her own right gail pergament gave me these great old tapes she had of sale and some of in some of which he's talking about amex and that's a that was a costume party to celebrate um eric drexler was uh, he had gotten his phd and eric drexler is the father of nanotechnology um very well known a total story there too and um drexler and mark miller were friends drexler was part of this group and he and miller really wrote these seminal papers um about computing and economics, which, um, which really, I think it had a heavy influence on Nick Zabo. And I think that they should be getting more attention today because they really saw, foresaw a lot of, they didn't write about blockchains or sort of distributed ledgers at all, but they anticipated that and they were writing about it. They were also really interested in object-oriented computing, which is still, I mean, these guys are still around, still doing work on this stuff. So um, yeah, there's all of these overlapping circles and interests, which I barely scratched the surface on in, in my uh, my documentary. Phil Salen was the founder of Amex. You probably know where I'm going with this question, but what kind of things did he have in mind to, what would people actually trade on a platform like that? So um, <clears throat> I have, so I got the Amex software um, and I got um, some of the, a lot of the paperwork, I got the manual for Amex. And one of the examples in the manual is um, a guy is looking to um, invest in Palo Alto real estate, but he doesn't know that much about the Palo Alto real estate market. He wants to know more. So he put, posts a, an ask or, to, to Amex and he finds somebody um, who's local and has that local expertise. And they, peer to, in a peer-to-peer sense, negotiate a contract and negotiate terms um, pay, you know, the payment is executed by the software. Um, but it's sort of like, that's an example. Um, Amex ended up being used, um, within the small talk network in terms of like helping with computer programming. Um, it was actually utilized. It didn't, I don't think it ever fully launched, but, um, it's kind of things that you, that someone like Tim May and Tim May ultimately did say this. It's that, so mundane. That, he said, that's where people I was going with my question. He, yes. People so don't that, want so then, People don't care about your surfboard recommendations. That, like, that was, and, and again, I mean, one thing that's a little bit different from today's Bitcoin world is like these guys were actually all friends. Like Salen and May really liked each other, even though they, um, you know, they weren't on Twitter calling each other shitcoiners or anything like that. Like they, they liked each other, and they, even though they saw the world differently, um, so they they had a meeting in. Um, 1987, um, they met through Chip Morningstar, who well known as the um, kind of the pioneer, the man behind um, one of the this um, uh, one of the first online multiplayer games. Um, and Morningstar and May uh, were friends through a science fiction fan club and they were talking about all this stuff they were real into science fiction and the internet and so forth and Morningstar was working for Salem. Um, and which says a lot about the project because he had a very high caliber of software engineers on his team. Um, and so he introduced the two of them and May got a demo of Amex. And May was like, this is like nobody, this, you know, he's like, okay, this is fine, but this is not going to bring freedom to the world. This is not the game changing technology that, um, that, that we need or that this technology is capable of. Um, and he instead um, started to talk about something that he would later call Blacknet, which was um, stolen corporate information, stealing corporate secrets, doing illicit things for illicit information that the government couldn't control and the government couldn't touch. And that that, that would actually be something that would really disrupt society. It was sort of this, but while well, Salen's idea was like, no, it's, it, it's mundane, but... Um, 
mundane is 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 good because we're going to just change the world incrementally from the inside and sort of the tension between Salen and May is is like the theme that runs through my my documentary series and I also uh, when a, our article I wrote I think that to some degree I don't want to over I don't want to overstate this argument but I think to some degree you see parallels of that in today's uh, Bitcoin community about in terms of does this this technology are you kind of is it voice or exit well, that, that's not quite right is it you know are you exit is right are you building something that's exiting cyberspace is this world that that the current um, world can't touch it's 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 different it's a different it's another plane. Um, to, to kind of to cite the, the, the phrase from Werner Vinge's book, True Names, which is really influential on all of these guys. Or is it something that's going to gradually change society from within? And it gets to these ideas of whether we need to build systems that are, are basically incorruptible or whether they can be, whether they're somewhat corruptible, but doesn't, it's okay because there are all these gray areas um, in these different, you know, in, in these different uh, uh, sort of like levels or, or um, spheres of society. You have these, these gray areas that you can exploit. So, so that was the difference. Um, and so what, what's, I, I sort of, yeah, go ahead. Let, let's first get into sort of Tim May's alternative fishing a little right. bit before so, we get into the, the divides between the two. So he would so. call, so May later called it something like um, Gulch Gulch in cyberspace, um, something that's a, this protected world. Um, and and I, I think that in formulating this vision, May was really, it was, it was the beginning of the formulations of what's come to be known crypto anarchy and the beginnings of the, of the cypherpunk movement. I have um, his... Um, the, the crypto can you see it i do see it yeah it's the crypto anarchist manifesto in the poster form oh that's cool where did you get that uh that's made by um uh oh the group in prague or yes yes, yes. but i'm yeah. i'm <laughs> what is his name oh i should know his name his name is slipping oh mind. yes yeah. there's an artist i've been to, yeah his work is great yes i've seen yes. that um um so um May, well, Salen's objection to May's idea was like, okay, but how are you going to pay for stuff? Um, because um, how do you, he, you know, he, he said something to May that's like, like, and this platform for stolen information, the only anonymous form of paying for stuff that may, uh, known to man is cash, right? And the whole idea here is that we're in the virtual world, we're in cyberspace, and you're, you're trading with people all over the world, and you can't, what are you going to do, like mail them suitcases of cash. And actually that's what May, May's first initial response to that was like, yeah, yeah, maybe you'll be like, you put a suitcase of cash in a locker and Grand Central Terminal, and then like, you'll, you'll give the guy the codes. But he knew that that was clunky. But anyway, it was sort of that question. May, May was like, okay, Salen's got a point here. This is a problem that got, and that was what got May really interested in the work of David Chom and the power and, and public key cryptography as this game changing discovery. And that, and he, he had read, he had seen Chom's uh, 1988 article, um, uh, which is called what security without, uh, I'm going to forget the, it's a long title. I wish I could get the exact title, right? It was, it was kind of developing an idea that he had, you, you might know, I mean, it was, it was kind of developing earlier ideas he'd had about how you could have anonymous payments, create this, this anonymous payment system using cryptography, right? Um, David Chaum did. David Chaum, yeah. Yes, yes, sure. Um, um, and, and I, don't, so, I don't remember the exact title of the paper. There were a couple. Security, them, main... without, security without identity, maybe? How to make a Big Brother obsolete. Something that was, like that. That was and, the and, subtitle, yeah. And, and, um, and May read this article, and he said it was, like, it was like standing on top of a mountain and seeing what was out there. He thought that Chaum's system was, was flawed. Um, he thought it didn't have two-way anonymity. It didn't, there were all kinds of problems with it. But it, show, it showed him that by using cryptography, it would be possible to build... Um, to build a virtual money system. And, you know, that to me, that's like, that's an important, that realization on the part of May is important milestone in the history of Bitcoin. Uh, because Bitcoin ended up sort of being the fulfillment of that. Now, of course, Bitcoin is not really that anonymous. And, and you know, you could almost say um, the closest thing to BlackNet that we've seen so far is the Silk Road. And mm -hmm. the Silk Road was made possible by Bitcoin. Because people could, you know, you, you could, uh, of course, 
Bitcoin did work on the Silk Road in the sense that um, you could, there was no credit card processing uh, company that could stand in the way of a transaction going through. However, it turned out to be a lot less anonymous than a lot of people thought. And, and since then, a lot of the people who are using Silk, uh, the Silk Road have been caught and arrested or cut deals with the government. So, um, but that, that, was, um, that was sort of the, the big realization for May. And that's what got May so excited about um, public key cryptography, which had, which had been developed in the late 1970s, but it's not something he had been a physicist at Intel. I don't think it's something he had followed closely, but then that became his, the focus of his, of his work. Yes. And that's what I wanted to realize with the cypherpunks. They, they knew of all of these cryptographic breakthroughs, but they saw that it wasn't actually being used by anyone in any, any meaningful way. So that's how they sort of, that's why they started the cypherpunks, get a group of these guys together and let's bring this stuff into the real world and then may went on and he and you touched on this and he had this whole he created this whole vision of basically a parallel world a parallel world with walls of cryptography and where people could um hide their hide their income stream from the government and evade taxes in that way and eventually sort of undermine governments altogether and that's, I think, I think it's one of the interesting things about your documentary is that you made it clear that you, you focus on the divide where not actually, not everyone was actually on board with that. Even within the cypherpunks, there were always sort of, it was a, it was a coalition of the more radical types like Tim A and those that were more interested in just private communication, privacy in general, but not necessarily undermining governments, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, and a lot of people, even the people who sort of liked that idea um, would wince at May's, um, May's radicalism. I mean, one, one of the characters, Dean Tribble, who's part of this group as well, calls May the shock jock of the cyberpunk movement. He liked to make these rather shocking remarks that would kind of freak people out a little bit because a lot of people didn't want to sign on to these ideas. So, so you have like people like, no, I, I don't want that. I just want privacy or I don't want. So um, I think you're absolutely right. And, and one person who's, you know, important in the story is Chom and Chom wanted nothing to do with Tim May. Chom was not a cypherpunk by any means. He's not particularly libertarian, but um, May was, May was, uh, it was unrequited love between May and Chom. Not that May cared at all, but like May, Chom, really wanted nothing to do with May and, um, you know, uh, didn't, didn't, I, in fact, you know, I, I was going to interview Chom for my documentary and we were all set to go. Um, but I could tell that being associated with May, even today, even after May's death is something that gives him pause. Right. Yeah. One of the interesting snippets in your documentary series is at one point you asked Tim May about how anonymous systems can be abused by terrorists or child pornographers or money launderers or all of these kinds of things. And I don't know if it was a surprise to you. It wasn't to me because I read so many of his posts, but I really like, in a way, his boldness when it comes to these kinds of things. What you see a lot, even today in Bitcoin, is that people try to sort of downplay these risks and they'll argue that ah, it's not that good. It's not that anonymous. It's, you know, there's hardly any... Uh, a, a very small percentage of transactions is actually used for drug dealing. There are no examples of terrorists financing through Bitcoin. But the way Temei saw it, and I tend to agree with it, is, yeah, we might not be seeing that today, but this technology is going to enable that. And he was not shying away from that at all. He was, well, um, I mean... Um... It's not out yet, but um, I know I, I gave you a preview. You saw part four. It gets a little bit into the story of Jim uh, of Jim Bell, um, and Jim Bell kind of represents that best of all. He was a, on the cypherpunks list, and he had this whole idea about building an assassination market using cryptography as a way to take down the government, advocating you know uh, like targeted assassinations. Um, for government officials and that this would be very effective. And that was, including May, even May wanted nothing to do with Jim Bell. And Jim Bell ended up in, in, in prison, not for what he wrote, but for other things like dropping a stink bomb on a, on a, a post office. Um, so um, Bell, Bell, I think, even more so than May, represents the kind of the extreme radicalism of the, the crypto-anarchist idea. 
Yeah, I think Tim A's argument, so first of all, it's it's worth the trade-off would be one part of his argument. And right. the other part is, you know, if you want to counter terrorism, look at the source of terrorism. Look at all these countries we're bombing. That's where terrorism comes from. It's not an anonymity in itself. Absolutely. And, you know, airplanes are obviously um, can be used for evil. Cars kill a lot of people. Telephones were basically his idea is like every technology that has benefited society has downsides. And, you know, the government can focus on the small minority of cases and fear monger and use that as a, an excuse to violate our rights. That was his basic idea. But also, you know, May's philosophy, and this was best summed up by Eric Hughes and the, the tagline cypherpunks write code. It's very much an idea that this idea that like technology is the driving force of history, much more so than politics. And that's something that, that I, that I agree with and that kind of gets me excited about this, these guys worldview, let's build the tools and that that'll be much more important. Um, and that's something that is, is an exciting to think about when you think about today's Bitcoin world, like if we can build a truly decentralized monetary system that can't be screwed with by the government, um, whatever people are saying or thinking, whatever's happening with public opinion, the existence of that tool can have an enormous impact on society. Yeah, so let's move forward a little bit to today's crypto world, which is also where you, uh, what you wrote an article about, uh, which is called Bitcoin. What's the name of the article? How Bitcoin Ta- will lead to freedom, I think. Is How Bitcoin will yeah. lead to freedom. Yeah. yeah, and so your thesis there, well, I'll let you explain it, but your thesis is that this divide that was as old as Phil Salin and Tim May's sort of disagreements back in the late 80s, we're still seeing that today in a way. Yeah, I'm, so I mean, I start the, started the piece with the case of um, the example of Katie Hahn, who people in the Bitcoin world probably know is the, um, she, she was a, a prosecu- federal prosecutor at the Department of Justice. She didn't actually work on the Silk Road case, but she did prosecute the two corrupt federal, federal agents who were, um, uh, who were prosecuting the Silk Road, or who were involved with the Silk Road case. And she, she um, kind of yeah, had who, who, went, who went to jail themselves, right? Who went to jail themselves, that's right. Um, they, in, in this, in the, she had her own kind of oh shit moment with Bitcoin, where it's like she started to read the details on this. She's like, oh wow, this is, this is um, quite a technology, you know, and she got really excited about it. And she ended up um, leaving her job and today is um, a general partner and at, uh, one of the premier Silicon Valley funds, um, uh, venture capitalist funds, um, uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and they have hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. And no, she co-leads it along with Chris Dixon. And I think that she and Dixon kind of share, share their view, which is that like, they see this connection with the Tim May side of things or the Silk Road or as really just a misunderstanding that that's not what Bitcoin is. That's not what Bitcoin has to be. Um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency more generally is this just amazing tool to democratize finance, um, to um, just create, to, to build a better internet. Chris Dixon comes out of the, the web. Um, he was involved in the web point, 2.0 world. Um, and there's this idea that like, oh, well, this is the next iteration where we can fix a lot of the things that were wrong with the web that led to all this centralization on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. So that's kind of one side. I mean, I sort of see her all the way over to one side in today's cryptocurrency space because, you know, she's clearly um, part of what she's bringing to the table is her knowledge of regulation and law enforcement and expertise. And that I'm sure, you know, part of what A16Z does is they don't only invest in funds, they help their their partner companies navigate the terrain. And I'm sure that's something that is helpful. Um, so she's kind of over on one end. And then on the other end, you have the pe- people who are more in the Tim May school of things who say, you know, um, I quote a, a a tweet by Pierre Richard, which is, I wouldn't be interested in Bitcoin if the government wasn't trying to shut it down. Uh, and I think there's, there's overlap between that and someone like P- uh, Pierre, who's, who's, who is a Bitcoin maximalist and doesn't, you know, thinks that um, a number of things, you know, Bitcoin is really the only cryptocurrency that matters. We only really need one money, et cetera. But sort of the, the Chris Dixon Katie Hahn view of cryptocurrency is fundamentally flawed because 
because it, you can't have this total game-changing impact on um, the world with a technology that works with regulators or that regulators can screw with or that has these security vulnerabilities built in. And it, to me, it's just, it's a, it's a debate that's so reminiscent of May's objection to Amex and Salen. It's very different in the sense that like, I mean, Amex wasn't, wasn't a cryptocurrency. It wasn't, it didn't really have, cryptography wasn't a part of it really. Um, but still it was a debate about what technology will, um, you know, accent, lead to more human freedom, really. And that's, and, and it's, it's kind of, it's to some degree the same debate, although, of course, a lot of what the, the Bitcoin maximalists complain about are just, you know, technologies that are outright scams or are poorly designed uh, and so forth, which is somewhat different. So I don't want to overstate the argument, but I, I do think that there's this parallel. Yeah, well, I am a little bit of a maximalist myself, or at least people call me that, and I have no issue with that. I think it's accurate enough, probably. And if I would have to sort of rebut that argument, then I would say Bitcoin was built for a very specific reason, which is that sort of absolutist uh, philosophy uh, should be able to ignore governments in a way it should be able to sustain government attacks eventually and it's also very absolutist in this way this was also a, a bit of a debate on, among cypherpunks by the way this absolutist interpretation of identity and public keys private keys like to what extent is your identity really your private key or your public key and tim may had a sort of absolutist view there as well like if your private key is stolen then your identity is stolen it's the same thing and that is, that is, you see that in Bitcoin as well, not your keys, not your coins, right? Right. Now, the other side of that argument, I would say, they're sort of now trying to take that technology and use it for other applications. And I think the argument against that is, yes, we're, we're, I'm not against automation. Automation is great, obviously. But why use this very inefficient blockchain technology, which is sort of inefficient by nature if you don't want to achieve these goals? then you might as well use a much more centralized system that doesn't have all of these excessive hash power requirements or everyone verifying everyone's smart contracts. It's just excessive. So there's no, so yes to automation. So yes to Phil Salin's vision, but not, don't, why not use this super inefficient technology for that? That's what I, that, that will, that's, I think that's the argument. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think so. So there's a little bit of a divide also is, is, is the technology, is this really just about building a monetary system or is it also a computer science, a new platform for computer science or not? And is it worth that? Sort of just what you just said. Um, and I think that the, the other side of that is um, the, this idea of having, for example, a ledger that nobody owns and that's immutable um, people will say, oh, well, there's, there's, first of all, um, that is, there, there are ways of doing that with this technology and that the value in that is, for example, um, having, say, um, land titles that exist that, that, um, that, that government doesn't maintain. Uh, you know, the, the urban historian Sam Bass Warner, I've heard secondhand, although I haven't read any of his books, said that the most important function of government is keeping track of who owns what land. Um, and, um, where I live in New York city, it's fairly, it's well done, even though most of what the government does here is poorly done. You can go online and see who owns any, any, you know, plot, evenly sized plot in New York city. It's open and it's not corrupted. There's not a huge, there are some issues, but not huge issues, but in, in many countries, that's not true. Um, and there's this idea, and this is something that Mark Miller and, um, and Mark Stiegler um, were writing about. They wrote about in the early 90s, this idea before blockchains, before you had this idea kicking around in today's cryptocurrency world. Um, the idea that you could have a, a land record that, that the government couldn't screw up, that was just kind of out there. And it wasn't sitting in a Google Doc it was much more immutable. It was much more, nobody, a Google Doc that ostensibly somebody could own or change or Google could go out of business. You could use the power of distributed computing to have this record. Um, or sort of, you know, the other idea you see that, that so I- the, So the, the counter argument, which you do address in the article is that 
a government in a you know a corrupt government might just say so what i don't care about this blockchain title system or decentralized so what we have the guns so tough luck which is a good response now actually now miller and stiegler respond to that but actually the the person who i think had the best rebuttal to that although i you know i'm not quite sometimes not quite sure on where he stands he he wouldn't um, I had some correspondence via email and over Twitter with him, but he wouldn't actually sit down for my documentary. Of course, it's Nick Zabo, who's a, you know, a, a huge name in all of this. And in one of his articles, he had this line, which was, I'll quote, while thugs can still take physical property by force, the continued existence of correct ownership records will remain a thorn in the side of usurping claimants. And that's from his 1998 piece, Secure Property Titles with Owner Authority. The idea being that, like, the, yes, that's true, but still the existence of this record is powerful. And violating this record when everybody knows it's true is powerful. You can't drop things through the Orwell, down the Orwellian memory hole using this technology and that that's meaningful. Um, so, I mean, I, um, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I, I probably lean towards the Bitcoin maximalism. I'm, I would say this. I'm most personally most interested in Bitcoin as a form of money because um, I think that, that that's where the real just enormous impact, a decentralized monetar- monetary system, because you see in country after country, and I think it's eventually, it might take 20 years, but it's going to happen in the United States too. Um, governments destroying monetary systems is, you know, sort of like at the root of so much of so much evil in today's world. And, and that's why Bitcoin is like 95% of my interest, maybe 90% of my interest is in Bitcoin and, you know, the lightning network and ways to make Bitcoin stronger and wider adoption of Bitcoin. Uh, But I, but I do, I don't dismiss and I am interested in the computer science um, arguments as well. I mean, I, I think that there's, I think that they're fascinating and, um, you know, and, and I, I think that, you know, maybe it's just something different. Maybe that's, that's a different application of a related technology that's also going to have a really big impact. I, I don't care about who you think is the real identity behind Satoshi, but do you think Satoshi was a cypherpunk? Do you think he really came from that tradition? Well, one counter argument would be that it's notable that some of the well-known cypherpunk projects like Bitgold wasn't even mentioned in the white paper. White Ice, B-Money was included, but only last minute. Do you, do you think he was a cypherpunk or what's your, what, what is your gut feeling? I, like? I, I mean, I just, right. The idea somehow that Satoshi wasn't, the fact that they were talking about so many of these ideas, I find it unlikely that he wasn't aware of or wasn't influenced directly by this movement. But the idea of like the question of was, is Bitcoin a cypherpunk project? Is Bitcoin something that came out of the cypherpunk movement? Whatever Satoshi believed or read or thought is almost doesn't matter because, you know, the proof of work system in Bitcoin is, is pulled from Hashcash and Adam Back and Hashcash are right out of the cypherpunk movement. Um, and then you even have something like, you know, the idea of what Satoshi called a time chain and now people call it blockchain. You know, this has its root in the, in the work of Haber and Stornetta. And Haber and Stornetta weren't in the cypherpunk movement, but Tim May writes about them in his cypher-nomicon and he, they were being, he was talking about them. That was kind of, well, May, May even said to me, like, he thinks that one of his talents is like, he can sort of see see something and know it's going to be important. He doesn't know exactly why or how, but that was one of his talents to kind of see that in advance. So, you know, the fact that so many of these components are, that, that became Bitcoin are rooted in, in the cypherpunk movement. And then on top of that, and you'll know this history better than I do, but like Hal Finney was absolutely essential in in helping to refine the code in Bitcoin, helping to, you know, get Bitcoin more attention, et cetera. And Hal Finney um, is, you know, absolutely right out of, he was on uh, Extropians list too, I believe. I mean, he was right out of the cypherpunk movement. So, I mean, I think it's, I, I agree with you. I think speculating on who Satoshi was is just like a waste of time. I don't, I'm not interested in that, but I just, uh, the idea that that Bitcoin isn't a cypherpunk project is something that is like, doesn't, I don't think there's a strong argument for that. 
There's another interesting link. Now you mentioned Hen- Helvini between Helvini and Phil Salin. Do you know what it is? Um, is it the um, Chirogenics? Is that yeah. it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're both frozen. Yeah. Um, to be brought back to life potentially <laughs> one day. That's yeah. another strong indication Phil Salin was an extropian, by the way. That yes, was a that's very right. extropian thing. That's right. I know that that was on the extropian list, yeah. Um, How long have you been working on this documentary? Because Tim May is in there, obviously. So it yes. must have been at least two years I mean, then, I think. I think that's right. I mean, Tim May was, I think that was the first trip where I shot document or I shot interviews. On that trip, I, I know I shot May. So that would be in, it was in 2018. And I, I could go, I could go back and look because I know I was out there because I was doing a story on um, autonomous vehicles. There was a conference there and I went to the, to San Francisco to do that. And while I was there, I was like, you know what, I'm going to stay. So I didn't really have any budget for this documentary. It was just like a something that I would just like tack on to other projects. Um, so I know, I know it was the, I, I could date it then. Um, but that was when I got May and I think I got Gilmore and probably one other interview on that particular trip. And then I kind of came back and I sat on the footage for a long time and I didn't quite have a focus, but I got, May had mentioned the high-tech Hayekians and Mark Miller and Phil Salem. And then I, I reached out to them and then it was on the next trip that I got Gail and um, Dean Tribble and Mark Miller and, um, and Chip Morningstar. Um, so and then it was, you know, it's been within the last um, six months, especially that sort of I've started to actually like edit it together and, and to form something. Um, so, yeah, I think we're running up close to an hour. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll throw my last question. There. What, so in these two years, unless it's something we already discussed, what's the most interesting or surprising thing you thought you found during your research? That's not in it's the a very open question. That's not in the documentary. Well, I, I mean, if it's in there and we haven't discussed it, then it's fine. If, if we already discussed it, then we can skip it. Well, it's certainly, I mean, the focus of my third part is about this idea of um, uh, software as free speech um, and the work of John Gilmore. And that was something that I didn't really know a lot about. And I kind of, since then, I've gotten much more interested in that. And I think the software as free speech um, idea is going to be really important going forward. I think we're just at the beginning of that because as these technologies start to have a bigger impact, Bitcoin in particular, I think that's going to be an essential de- defense. I mean, it was certainly that's also what Phil Salin wrote about, right? Was he the first one to offer this idea, or he was, was the first one? And if you read his um, his piece, which he wrote um, from a hospital bed shortly before he died, "Freedom of Speech and Software," um, he's talking a lot about patents, but he he does broaden the argument. And Gilmore has cited his his piece. Um, you know, Salen Salen's work. Salen is a visionary. There's a great Phil Salen paper. Uh, Mark Miller has a website called philsalen.com. Um, there's a great piece that Phil Salen wrote called "The Wealth of Kitchens." Too um, very Hayekian piece about local expertise. Um, Do you remember this- his argument? why software should be viewed as freedom of speech? Um, well, in the piece, he, he compares writing code to writing any other argument, that it's just speech, it's written. He sort of, he draws all these parallels that you're kind of, you're constructing a complicated formulation of ideas and you're ordering them. Um, and you're, and it can be, and of course, the most powerful illustration of the software speech idea was um, people like um, Phil Zimmerman, the creator of PGP and, and Gilmore himself, um, and Adam Back too, were involved with this, you know, putting the PGP code in a book and selling it in, in London or, or putting it on a t-shirt or a tattoo. So, how can you say it's not speech? If you can write it down and distribute it that way, then what's the difference? Like exploiting that blurry line um, is really interesting. I mean, the other thing, it was just, it was fascinating meeting some of the characters, including David Chom, who's just one of the strangest people I've met, but you know, a a genius, no doubt. Um, um, and he's, you know, he's spending not the, the day with May was fascinating. He's, he's not the easiest to work with, maybe. No, nah, uh, I've heard that. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. Um, but uh, um, 
Yeah, meeting meeting Tim May, going to John Gilmore's house and sort of seeing that and spending some time with him. I don't know, just meet these characters, like to meet them, see them up close. I mean, that, the, the great thing, and I, I think maybe you have this too, working on this history is like, it's just, it's kind of amazing to be working on stuff with guys like, because it's not that long ago, they're all around and they're not even that old. Um, and there's, you know, many of them are still working. Um, like these were the guys who were there and you can meet them and talk to them and hear their stories. And like, I just find that so exciting as someone who, like, I love history, but some of the history projects I've worked on are like, you know, history, you're not going to do an interview with someone who was there. So, so that, that, that was really fun. So where can people find the documentary series? Um, well, they can go to reason.com slash video. You'll see it there. Um, I'm going to create maybe today or tomorrow. I'm going to create a YouTube playlist or series where all the parts will be collected. Three of them have run. The next one is running on when, uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but, um, we are taping this on the tw October 22nd and, um, then the final installment is going to run next week. Um, so our reason TV's YouTube channel, you can subscribe, find them there. Um, or reason Twitter, my Twitter, which is just Jim Epstein, um, should be easy to find. Great. Jim, thank you very much. Thank it was you for having me. Thanks a lot. Cheers. I want to tell you about BitcoinBlackFriday.com. Bitcoin Black Friday is a project from the team that brought you Bitcoin Magazine and the Bitcoin 2021 Conference this coming April and May in Los Angeles. Bitcoin Black Friday is a celebration of the growing Bitcoin ecosystem and economy. On the BitcoinBlackFriday.com site, you're going to find deals for up to 50% off on your favorite Bitcoin gear and other merchants that are part of the Bitcoin ecosystem. That's right. They accept Bitcoin. If those deals are not enough, it doesn't stop at spending Bitcoin. This is about the entire Bitcoin circular economy. We have over 65 charities that you can support with Bitcoin on the site, as well as ways that you can stack sats and earn those precious Satoshis. So again, BitcoinBlackFriday.com, great place for deals and to earn and support with Bitcoin. And if that is not enough, we have teamed up with the Fold card. I'm sure many of you guys know that the Fold Bitcoin Back Rewards card is almost here. They have a wait list. And if you sign up for their wait list exclusively through BitcoinBlackFriday.com in the Fold placement and on the banners on the site, if you sign up through that, you will be entered to win a raffle for one entire Bitcoin. That's right. That is one whole BTC. If you're a Bitcoiner, you know that is life-changing amounts of BTC. Or in fiat, that is $13,200 at today's price. And with all the volatility, that could be a lot higher by the time you hear this ad. So don't wait one second. Go to BitcoinBlackFriday.com. Check out the deals. Sign up for the Fold card. Enter your chance to win an entire Bitcoin. Bitcoin.